What if you heard that Martians were invading the world? Within hours, New York City was gone. Death and devastation coming across the radio airwaves. And that still wasn't the biggest story of the week. Find out what was on this episode of Top Fold. Welcome to Top Fold, a podcast about all the news that would have been. I'm your host, Luke Hefley. Here at Top Fold, we explore monumental events that didn't make the top story only because that spot was already taken. The fourth planet from the sun has been written about for thousands of years. But it wasn't until 1892 when Camille Flammarion wrote that some of the planet's surface resembled man-made creations by the existence of intelligent life and suggested that the inhabitants may be more advanced than humans. Although disproved a little over a decade later, the possibility of life on Mars took hold. The literature world also took notice. H.G. Wells, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Ray Bradbury were just some of the great authors to write fictional stories about the Red Planet. H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, about a Martian invasion, when later turned into a radio play on the evening of October 30, 1938, according to legend, terrified millions. But did it? In the late 30s, radio was king. By 1938, almost 8 out of 10 households had radios, and many people even had them in their cars. Radio had momentum on its side, having passed magazines in revenue for advertising, and newspapers noticed. So when Mercury Theater on the Air broadcast their Halloween special, War of the Worlds, an adaptation of H.G. Wells' 1898 novel with the 23-year-old phenom Orson Welles, no relation, people noticed. Wells, the co-founder of Mercury Theater, had been on the cover of Time magazine just months earlier. Putting a modern twist on the original narrative with breaking newscasts and gripping first-hand accounts of the mayhem all live, moving the invasion to the United States, the episode became an instant classic. After reading a prologue loosely based on H.G. Wells' novel's opening, the program started with a ballroom orchestra. After a bulletin describing flashes observed leaving Mars, followed by a seemingly unrelated report of an unusual object coming down in New Jersey, the drama was classic Orson Welles. Telling listeners that many had died and the Martians were bound for New York City, many believed the all-too-realistic program. Wells mentioned at least three times that this was only a drama, and it was also in the programming charts of the daily newspapers. The New York Times Sunday edition spotlighted the show itself with a photo of Wells and his crew preparing for the radio program with the caption, Tonight, play H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. No matter, many people still believe the broadcast was real and that aliens were invading the world. During the hour-long show, it was reported that multiple police stations and newspapers were called. Before the show was over, CBS supervisor Davidson Taylor was ordered to break into the broadcast and clarify that it was fiction. Since it was less than one minute until a scheduled break, no interruption took place. Soon, multiple policemen showed up at the studio wanting to stop the show. With the press following right behind, they had lots of questions. Most now see the questions as exploiting the situation more than inquisitive. Questions like, how many deaths have you heard of? Implying they knew of thousands, which of course was false. Fatal stampedes, traffic wrecks, and suicides were all questions they had for Wells and the crew. Paul White, head of CBS News, while hastily writing explanations to put on the air, heard Wells 
sitting alone and very despondent, say, I'm through. I'm washed up. But was it really as bad across the city and the nation? It doesn't seem so. Instead of mass fear and panic in the streets, the most common response was calling the local newspaper or police to confirm the story or seek additional information. So who was inciting the panic? More and more, it seemed like it was the radio's printed foe. Just after midnight, after the broadcast, the lighted bulletin of the New York Times building read, Orson Welles causes panic. Many papers led front-page headline stories of how the program had caused mass hysteria. They used wire services speaking of events in places far away from local readership with sources that couldn't be verified or questioned. As far away as Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Journal reported around 100 phone calls from concerned citizens. The paper could only find a handful of cases in which people had overreacted to the program, and two of those were men playing pranks on their wives. I guess things never change. The town's other paper, the Milwaukee Sentinel, owned by the William Randolph Hearst chain of newspapers, was much more dire. It reported a massive spike in calls of people who became very angry after finding out about the false information sent out over the airways. With multiple quotes of trembling voices asking for reassurance, the paper was glad to oblige to set the story straight. Many understood that this was a fictional broadcast, but ironically, and more accurately, most people weren't even listening. The most popular show at that time on Sunday evenings, any evening for that matter, was Charlie McCarthy, the ventriloquist doll sidekick of famous comedian and former vaudeville actor Edgar Bergen. Yes, a doll. The newspapers didn't care. The next morning, headlines like, Radio Listeners in Panic, Taking War Drama as Fact, gave column after column about how the show had caused mass hysteria. The following day, Tuesday, November 1st, at least four articles in the New York Times kept Orson Welles and the program in the headlines. They were talking about what actions the FCC should and would take. Almost a half page was dedicated to excerpts from the broadcast, highlighting how so many could be confused. Seeing an opportunity to cast doubt on a newer medium, editor and publisher, the newspaper industry's trade journal, was all too happy to criticize Wells. They wrote, The nation as a whole continues to face the danger of incomplete, misunderstood news over a medium which has yet to prove that it is competent to perform the news job. Newspapers across the country were piling it on. It didn't look good. Believing that advertisers might bail, CBS executives were openly discussing firing Wells on the spot. The scrutiny was now on all parties involved, and it seemed like it would be for days, if not weeks to come. Would Wells lose his job, his career? It looked like Wells and his program was finished. His latest broadcast, more than likely, was his last. But then, everything changed in a minute. Or should I say more accurately, one minute, 56 and three-fifths seconds. See, that day, while the newspapers were doing their best, hyping that possibly millions were either fooled or at least very angry at Wells, Mercury Theater, and radio in general, all eyes and ears turned towards a racetrack in Baltimore, Maryland. You may have heard of the rags-to-riches story amid the Great Depression, a racehorse by the name of Seabiscuit. At Pimlico Racetrack, home of the Preakness, just over 40 hours after the so-called panic ensued, the race of the century began. Over 40,000 people were on hand, and 40 million were listening on the radio. 
one-third of the entire United States population, including President FDR and his staff. Seabiscuit, the blue-collar bay, versus the blue blood, triple crown winner and reigning horse of the year, War Admiral. How did Seabiscuit get here? A match race with the great War Admiral? How did his racing career start? Well, he lost his first 17 races. 17! By the end of his first year of racing, Seabiscuit had started an amazing 35 times, winning only five. After 10 races as a three-year-old, none in the Triple Crown, Seabiscuit was entered in a claims race for $6,000. He won the race, but embarrassingly, there were no takers. A few days later, the eccentric Charles Howard, who had made his fortune from the Buick automobile industry, hoped to make horse racing huge on the West Coast, and with some convincing from his trainer, Silent Tom Smith, he bought him. Seabiscuit finished the season with only nine wins in 23 starts. 58 races in two seasons. A lot for a racehorse, especially in only two years. The following season, as a four-year-old, he won his first race. After losing by a nose in the Santa Anita Handicap, the world's richest horse race, Seabiscuit found his stride, winning 10 out of the next 11 starts. He was voted champion older horse and was the leading money earner, edging out Triple Crown winner War Admiral. As a five-year-old, in 1938, Seabiscuit would win six races, but his stable was heartbroken once again when he barely lost the one race his owner Howard had always wanted to win, the Santa Anita Handicap. War Admiral had a great season as a two-year-old, but it was at age three in 1937 that was won for the history books. He was perfect, eight for eight. He won the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes going away, all three wire to wire, becoming only the fourth ever at the time to win the Triple Crown and edging out Seabiscuit for the 1937 Horse of the Year. This brings us back to the brisk November day and the race of the century. War Admiral's owner, legendary Samuel D. Riddle, dictated the terms, and the deal-breaker was no starting gates. War Admiral hated him and cut off a piece of his hoof coming out of one at the Belmont Stakes, but was such a great horse... He still won, so it was decided a bell would start the race. At 4.03 p.m., the bell rang, the rope dropped, and they were off. The owner of the racetrack, A.G. Vanderbilt Jr., feared that Pimlico couldn't handle the crush of people that would want to see the race, so he scheduled it on a Tuesday, figuring the workday would keep the crowd down. It didn't. A track that holds 15,000 quickly swelled to 40. In a crazy turn of events, this choice helped take the spotlight off of Orson Welles. If the race had been on the following Saturday, almost a week after the supposed panic, who knows what hyped-up news stories would have been written for the next few days. War Admiral was the favorite that day, but only at the betters' window. With the crowd on their feet, each horse taking the other's role, Seabiscuit sprinted to an early lead, and War Admiral played catch-up. Halfway through the race, Seabiscuit's lead was narrowing. War Admiral came on strong as the crowd roared, making an all-out effort and assumed a small lead. Truth be told, George Wolfe, Seabiscuit's jockey that day instead of the injured Red Pallard, had been told earlier by Pallard to ease up mid-race and let his horse see War Admiral. For the next furlong, they were neck and neck. Coming into the stretch, time seems to have stood still. Seabiscuit, as he had done so often, took off, and Wolf looked over at War Admiral's rider, Charles Kurtzinger, grinning with confidence and said, So long, Charlie. 
Going away with it, Seabiscuit easily won by four lengths, breaking the Pimlico track record with a time of 1 minute, 56 and 3 fifths seconds. It was pure pandemonium across the country. Seabiscuit proved to the world that he was indeed the greatest and later earned Horse of the Year honors. After the race, each team challenged the other with what today would be called some serious trash talk, saying how they would quickly meet again. They never did. The following year, War Admiral was injured during his first race. But in classic War Admiral style, he won. Shortly thereafter, he retired with a phenomenal record of 21 wins in just 26 starts. Seabiscuit himself ran once, was injured, and retired to stud. In 1940, almost a year and a half after his win over War Admiral, Howard entered Seabiscuit in the elusive Santa Anita Handicap. He was coming out of retirement to try for the winner's circle one more time. As mentioned earlier, Seabiscuit had lost twice by a nose, and no one knew if he would even finish in the money, this time as a seven-year-old. As in true Seabiscuit fashion, he made a late charge to come from behind and won. He didn't just win. He won in record time. That was his last race. He promptly retired for good and went out as champion with a lifetime record of 33 wins and 89 starts. There's a statue of Seabiscuit at that very racetrack today. Many years later, fittingly, both Seabiscuit and War Admiral were inducted in the Hall of Fame at the National Museum of Racing in Saratoga Springs, New York, the same year, 1958. Regarding Orson Welles and his future, as much as the newspapers tried, because everyone was paying attention to what Seabiscuit had done, Welles and the Martian invasion were no longer the headline story. Newspapers around the country realized that people wanted all Seabiscuit all the time. With headlines about Seabiscuit day after day, newspapers were selling out all over the country. When the next episode of Mercury Theater aired, Welles apologized, but now he was far from washed up. Not long afterward, his show became sponsored by Campbell's Soup, a huge advertiser, which was the lifeblood of programs during this time. Just two and a half years later, Wells made his motion picture debut with the award-winning movie Citizen Kane, the epic story critically spotlighting the rise and dramatic fall of a newspaper publisher, was based on the real-life media magnate William Randolph Hearst. Hearst owned many of the papers that were all too willing to promote the panic and mayhem that had come across the radio airwaves years earlier. But Wells had the last laugh, as Citizen Kane is considered one of the greatest movies ever made. When the dust finally settled at the racetrack on that Tuesday afternoon, November 1st, 1938, the nation truly had a hero for the ages. The unwanted attention that Wells obtained earlier was no longer, and he was able to do what he did best, make award-winning radio, movie, and television programs for the next half century. And there you have it, all the news that would have been. Thank you for joining us this week on Top Fold. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Top Fold Podcast. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. All my sources and research can be found at topfold.buzzsprout.com. There, along with other things that bring history to life. I'd like to thank David Wagler for the music. And if you like the show, please rate us and give us a review. Or simply tell a friend. That would be great. So until next time, there you have it. All the news that would have been.